Hey guys, welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, this is a special episode. As you've noticed, I've started doing two a week recently leading up to the election because it's so important for us to get pro-life ideas out there, to make our case for life and to make our case to voters and to Christians who say they're pro-life but will not be voting for life. Life and death is on the ballot very soon. And this is the most important election for our pre-born neighbors and for life and liberty for everyone else. And so we want to bring you another episode this week from Calvary Chapel Signal Hill, where I had the privilege and honor of preaching this last Sunday with Pastor James Cadiz, a wonderful church with courageous leadership that are opening their church for the broken, for the hurting, for those in need of the gospel and fighting for life. And so the service that we did here was a short sermon with interactive Q&A with the wonderful brothers and sisters at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. So this is an Ask Me Anything episode. We want to bring to you to listen to, to get equipped, and to share with others so that you can get out there and defend the lives of our pre-born brothers and sisters. Buckle up. Here we go. All right, so as Seth is going to be sharing, he'll be sharing for probably about 10 minutes. We'll have a microphone set up that you guys can come up and ask some questions. We'll have that ready. And uh, so let's give a warm welcome to my very dear friend, Seth Gruber. Well, thank you, guys. It's, it's really great to be here. As I told the earlier services, it feels like coming home because I hail from the 562, yeah? <laughs> so I was uh, raised in Whittier, Uptown Whittier. That's where my folks still are. I live in Orange County now in San Clemente with my wife, son, and a, a pre-born daughter um, who's due December 5th. So that's where I'm, I am now, but it feels like coming home. These are near my stomping grounds. And it also feels like coming home because Calvary chapels have been so welcoming to me. Um, and are so willing to partner with me for life and encouraging and equipping their people to stand for life. It's such a propitious political moment when we need Christians on the front lines saying enough is enough. So I want to give you just a brief summary of kind of the case for life. I kind of just want to fire hose you, if you will, all right, uh, with everything you need to fill your quiver with arrows to engage effectively on the battlefield of abortion. And that's because there's a lot of confusion on this issue, isn't there? Uh, there's a lot of moral confusion. There's a lot of spiritual confusion. There's a lot of political confusion. And we're seeing this increasingly from churches, from Christian leaders and pastors who ought to be leading the charge for ch Christians to be on the front lines. But oftentimes they're telling us, almost quite literally, to run back and cower and hide. And most recently this has come from Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who said recently on Facebook that because the Bible doesn't he says, the Bible tells me abortion is a sin and a great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end it in this country. So then he says, therefore, when it comes to voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience, meaning they have freedom to vote however they want. So Tim Keller recently told his massive following, right, from his pulpit and influence that God has given him, he used that to tell Christians in America, can I translate it for you? God doesn't care about your vote because you have liberty of conscience. He literally says when it comes to voting and political involvement, you have liberty. So if you want to vote for the party of abortion and infanticide, the Democratic Party, who is saying about another class of victims that they're humans but not persons, oh yeah, didn't they do that in the 1850s? Yeah, exactly. That you have the freedom to vote for that party. It's totally fine. So we're seeing this moral, spiritual, and political confusion, and it's infecting the next generation. And I know that because I go and speak in these high schools and colleges and youth groups and churches and conferences, and I can see the moral fog that our young people are living in. So I've devoted my life to this because I believe the church is the sleeping giant, right? As Pastor, uh, uh, or actually, no, it wasn't Rob. It was actually Dinesh D'Souza yesterday at Chino Hills. Great example, wonderful analogy. He talked about how lions, when they're being tamed by lion tamers, obey all of the orders. But who's stronger? The lion's stronger, but he doesn't know it because he's been conditioned to believe that those controlling him are stronger. Yep. The church is a sleeping giant. The church is a lion that is being tamed and whipped into place by woke progressive Christians who care very little for the life of the unborn. And it's time for the church to realize the lion that we are because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit 
to engage supernaturally on the battlefield of abortion to end the slaughter of God's preborn image bearers. Amen. So I'm going to give you briefly how we bring moral clarity. And then throughout questions, we can talk about spiritual and political clarity. We won't have time to get to all of that. But again, go listen to the whole message. The way we bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion is by making the case for life. <clears throat> What's the case for life? That's how we describe what we believe. It's how we defend the preborn. And many Christians, and I'm sure you can identify with this, who are pro-life, don't know how to effectively defend their beliefs. How many of you in conversations, when you're being thrown pro-choice arguments, you're like, I know that's wrong. I know that's not a good argument for abortion, but I, I'm not exactly sure how to respond persuasively. And so that's what I do. I help equip and train Christian leaders, lay people, and young people to be a gracious and persuasive voice for the unborn, to be an ambassador for the unborn, right? Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So here's how we make our case for life. We look at what the science teaches us. Because the science of embryology has been overwhelmingly clear about life in the womb for literally decades. It's not like we don't know what is in the womb. So what is the unborn? Well, the science teaches us that from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being from that moment. Now, I know we've been indoctrinated to not view the child as fully human until they're more developed. But these are just political myths crafted out of whole cloth by people who don't care about the unborn. The science is overwhelmingly clear. And isn't it ironic that the people who are for abortion, they say that they're pro-science? Isn't that funny? <laughs> but they refuse to acknowledge the science of embryology. The same people who say they're pro-science, by the way, also say that men can be women and women can be men. So, I mean, this is all just silliness that's crafted euphemistically in order to indoctrinate the next generation. So what is the unborn? Distinct, living, and whole from the moment of conception. That's what the science of embryology teaches. And you'll find this language in any embryology textbook on any university campus. Distinct means separate, right? Distinct means unique. Distinct means I'm not you and you're not me. You're your own distinct individual. There's never going to be another you. There's only one of you. So if the science says that that's true of the unborn, that they're distinct from the moment of conception, what does that mean as it's applied to the issue of abortion? The body in her body is not her body. My body, my choice. My right? Repeat and believe. Repeat and believe. Don't think for yourself. Yep. But if the unborn child is part of the mother's body and there is only one body hers, do you know what strange conclusions we're left with? Pregnant women must have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes, two different blood types, potentially uh, a different gender. She's pregnant with a boy. I, pregnant women now have male genitalia. Oh, wait. Hmm, maybe we went down the wrong intellectual route. Maybe yeah. we should reroute. The unborn child is distinct. They're living because dead things don't grow. The unborn child meets all of the requirements for a living thing that we learned in high school biology. And the unborn child is directing their own internal growth from within. So the mother's not willing her child to grow. The baby's doing it by itself. There's no outside builder, if you will. I mean, God is knitting them together, so there is an outside builder. But it's not the mother. The child's directing their own internal growth, so they're living. And they're whole. A whole human being is simply a human being who has everything they need internally, intrinsically, to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Here's what I mean by whole. I'm 29, but I'm not 40 but I have everything I need to realize a 40-year-old's level of development, right? Your children don't have all of the same functions or capacities that you do, physically, intellectually, emotionally, but does that mean they're not whole human beings now? No, they're still whole human beings. They just haven't realized certain aspects of their development. The same is true with the child. So according to the science, from the moment of conception, the unborn child is already a whole human being, meaning all their DNA is there. Their gender is determined. Everything about who they will become is already present. They just haven't realized it yet. Just like your children haven't realized all aspects of their physical development. So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development, right? We're all along that continuum somewhere. But when did that continuum begin? The moment of conception. This is what the science teaches. And anyone who disagrees with me doesn't have a bone to pick with the pro-life movement. They have a bone to pick with reality. This is what the science teaches. So what is the unborn? They're a human. Okay, but then the pro-abortion advocate and movement, they shift, okay? They're gonna bait and switch on you. And they're gonna say, okay, you're right. I don't wanna look that silly because I do say I'm the pro-science person. Okay, so the unborn is human. And they will grant your premise. They will say that you're right as pro-lifers when you say the unborn is human, but they won't change their mind. So they'll admit that it's a human, but that it's still okay to kill it for all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all wild so they're saying it's okay to kill little humans you know how they make that argument the same way that same party made that argument in the 1850s they're not 
persons. And you're thinking, what's the difference, <laughs> right? And that's the, that's the question you should ask. What's the difference? Honestly, when people tell you the unborn is a human but not a person, so it's okay to kill them, that's the question I want you to ask them. What's the difference? Have, ask them this. Have you ever met a human that's not a person? <laughs> Honestly, call their bluff. Ask them that question. The practitioners of genocide always separate the term human from person in order to convince their society that some humans are not persons and can be mistreated and killed. That's what Nazis did to Jews. It's what racists did to blacks. And it's what pro-aborts do to unborn children. Yeah. Separate the term human from person. We as pro-life Christians would never separate those two terms, would we? We would say, if you're a human, you're a person. Aren't they just synonymous? Yes. But those with a vested political interest in dehumanizing a certain class of human beings will always separate the term human from person. And every time that's been done historically, bad things have happened. Usually the slaughter of millions of innocents of human beings. So how do we make a case for the equal value of the unborn? We make a case from human equality. And this is important because that's how the other side couches their language, right? Do they say pro-bigotry, pro-infanticide? No, they say reproductive health care, women's equality, human rights. They use the language of equality to describe their position while literally excluding one million babies from the class of equality. Wild. Yes. But they rely on euphemisms so that it's easier for you to swallow that ideological pill. Repeat and believe. So we're going to make a human equality. We're going to use their language. We're going to make a human equality argument for the unborn child. Remember, they've already said that you're right when it, you say it's a human. Now we're going to show that the only way to maintain human equality is to grant human rights to all humans. Shocker. Here's how we make our human equality argument for the unborn. There's no value giving difference between you the unborn and you the born that makes it okay to kill you the unborn. Now there are differences, right, between fetuses and teenagers. I'm not saying there's no differences between unborn humans and born humans. I'm saying none of those, none of those differences can be used to justify killing the unborn. You know why? Because the unborn differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. So any difference you point out in the fetus and use that difference to justify killing them can be turned around and used to justify killing you. Did you know Abraham Lincoln made the same arguments against racism? He took the same route. He showed his opponents how in accepting arguments for slavery, southern states were putting into place the premises that would justify their own enslavement. He wrote in this piece of paper one night called Fragments on Slavery, a little thought, a little argument that he probably used in his arguments and debates with Douglas. Remember Stephen Douglas, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates? Here's what Lincoln wrote one night. He wrote, you say A is white and B is black. He's talking to like a racist, a supposed dialogue, right? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker? Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Who? Wow. But he goes on. He says, oh, but you say that it is intellect and that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks. Lincoln goes, take care again. By this rule, you're to be a slave to the first man you meet with, a, with an intellect superior to your own. And then he says, oh, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet who can make it his interest to enslave you. Hmm. So racists were basing their arguments for slavery on functions and capacities that come in varying degrees. Do you see what I mean? Doesn't skin color come in varying degrees? We don't all have the same skin color. Do we all have the same level of interest? No. Do we all have the same intellectual prowess? No. So the, the, the slave defender was basing their arguments on things that come in varying degrees. But if personhood and a right to life are based on things that come in varying degrees, what follows? Personhood and a right to life come in varying degrees. So by accepting the institution of slavery and the premises that made it plausible in the first place, namely that not all humans are created equal, Southern states were putting into place the premises that would justify their own enslavement because they were accepting differences to enslave the, the black, they could be used to enslave them. Similarly, pro-abortion advocates based their arguments on size, level of development, environment, and dependency. And they say the unborn child is smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, a womb, 
and the child's more dependent. But the unborn differs from us in the same ways we differ from one another. Don't we all differ according to our size, our level of development, our location, and our dependency? A any kids in here? Are you paying all your own bills? You're more dependent than me. Can we kill them? No. So we differ even in our dependency. Are you on insulin, heart pacemakers, kidney machines? Can we kill you because you're more dependent? No. Do you see? So the pro-choice advocate, like the racist, accepts premises for abortion that could be turned right around and used to justify mistreating them. So that's how we make our human equality argument, is to say there's no value-giving difference between you, the unborn, and you, the born, that can be used to justify killing you, the unborn. Hmm. So notice, I've just answered what is the unborn from science. They're a human being. That's plain, undisputed scientific fact. And then I've shown that they're full persons with equal rights. And I haven't cited Bible verses to make my case, but I'm communicating biblical truth nonetheless that these are intrinsically valuable human beings from the moment of conception. And the only way to maintain this idea of human equality is to ground human rights in the only thing we have in common. And what's the only thing we have in common? Humanity, a human nature, which begins at the moment of conception. So that's how we make our case for life. Excellent. Isn't it great, guys, the stuff that he's sharing? It's really, it's powerful stuff. So... Um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a Q&A time. I'm going to emphasize a few things as I always do, right? The Q&A time is exactly that. It's a time to ask questions. It is not a time to make a statement, okay? I want to I make that very, very clear. Um, I will not be the nice guy because I will really moderate it. And I will say, okay, all right, you got a question? Um, it's very, very important. And I want you to ask the difficult questions. This guy is the guy that can do it. Also, for those of you that are watching on the live stream, uh, as long as YouTube doesn't ban us like they did last, uh, uh, last service, they actually shut the, uh, the stream down in the middle because of what he was sharing. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing to me, I'll make this comment, how an organization like YouTube, who claims to stand for human rights, they claim to stand against racism. They're the, they are the total, we are at the head of anti-racism. They put up the Black Lives Matter. They put up the black squares and everything. And yet the very same people that say to claim, that claim to stand up for black lives are the same people that will shut a man down completely, shut a man down who preaches against the murder, the systemic murder of 1,500 black babies every single day in this country. You think about that. By the way, just so you get an idea, and the numbers have been revised, they say they're a little higher than even the numbers I'm sharing, but think about this. 13% of the population in this country are black. Black families, men, women, children, 13%. Of the 13%, think this through for a second, 50% of the babies that are aborted overall in this country are part of the 13%, black babies. Think about that for a minute. It's horrible, right? But yet these people, oh, we're pro, we, we are anti-racism to the core, we stand against it, whatever. Come on, they're the most racist people alive, uh, like the Democratic Party. Uh, anyway, I just want to kick something off. I'm, I, I, wanna, I wanna say this, because you mentioned Tim Keller and you've talked, to, and I, there's a lot of guys like him that will say that as Christians, it's a matter of conscience to vote for whatever party we wanna vote for, and we really shouldn't be condemning or uh, uh, encouraging anybody to vote for one party or the other, um, how would you address that? And then we'll, take, right. uh, we'll start taking questions. Yeah, <clears throat> so I addressed this in the last service. Again, go check out the full message. <clears throat> but this very new, relatively more new, um, but uh, we're growing very accustomed to it, the silly idea that we as Christians can't tell other people how to or not to vote. And this is what Tim Keller said exactly, specifically, almost verbatim in his, his recent Facebook post about three weeks ago. And the way he justifies that position is by saying, well, you know, the Bible's above politics. Christ is above politics. Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. Okay, amen, obviously, that's inarguable. But he moves from that premise to say, therefore, the church shouldn't be telling people how to vote or not to vote. Because the Bible doesn't prescribe policies, right? It doesn't, it doesn't prescribe political solutions so that you have liberty of conscience. It's a very silly idea, okay? Now, maybe if one party wasn't slaughtering a million humans a year, Maybe we could make that claim. But when one party rounds up a million babies every year, says they're not persons, rips their limbs off their body, or poisons them with the abortion pill, makes you fund it with your tax dollars, and calls it reproductive health care, uh, yeah, at that point, we as Christians can tell other Christians how to vote or not to vote. And by the way, Tim Keller has written in previous writings, very popular New York Times article in 2018, he wrote. And in that article, he blasts 
blasts Christians in the 1850s for not acting politically to protect the slave. Or worse yet, voting for Democrats who were the party of slavery and using the KKK as their domestic terrorist arm. Yep. He's blasted them for that. But he baits and switches on abortion and says, but unborn children don't really deserve your political protection. Or if they do, I certainly am not going to tell you that you should vote in such a way as to protect them. So let me briefly just tell you how the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters how to vote or not to vote. And I'm talking specifically if you're discussing this with someone who says they believe in the word of God. Okay, obviously you, you, this is not going to work for someone who says, I don't believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. I don't believe the Bible is divinely inspired. Well, then I have nothing to say to you because you don't view the Bible as authoritative. But if they view the Bible as authoritative and they want to put themselves under the word of God, as we all should as Christians, I'm, I'm saying this is what you can say to those people. The Bible tells us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Proverbs 31.8. Unborn children literally cannot speak up for themselves. Proverbs 24, 11 says, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Yeah, unborn children are staggering towards slaughter. And it says, if you say we did not know about this, you're going to be held accountable for that. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, he who made your life knows it and he sees your heart and he knows that you know. So don't pretend that you don't know. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Okay. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. What's the best way to speak up for a class of neighbors that it's legal to kill? to make it illegal to kill them. Hmm. That would be yeah. the best and most important way to speak up for a class of neighbors that a society said it was legal to kill, right? Now, does that mean there's not other important ways to love that class of neighbor? No, there's plenty wonderful manifestations in the pro-life movement of serving unborn children and their mothers and fathers. But wouldn't the first and most important way to be stop killing them? <laughs> How do we do that in America? Our vote. We vote in such a way as to promote righteousness and restrain evil insofar as we can, given current political realities. That's how we do that. So can you accomplish speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves if you vote for the very party profiting off of, promoting, and protecting the slaughter in the first place? Anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would have to tell you no. You can't vote for the party that kills children and speak up for the unborn. So look, oh, look, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who not to vote for. <laughs> but what does James tell us? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if we have the ability in the most exceptional civilization in human history where political power is put into we the people's hands, if we have the ability to use that power and vote to stop the genocide of baby image bearers, hmm. we should do that. Amen. That is the right thing to do. And anyone who tells you otherwise simply ask them if they'd say the same thing on slavery. Ask them if they would defend the premise that it, it's acceptable for Christians to not vote for the party committed to protecting the slave or to vote for the other party committed to enslaving the blacks, our brothers and sisters. Would they say the same thing about slavery? No, they wouldn't. Yep. So why do they say the same thing about the unborn? They're not truly convinced that they're image bearers of God with equal rights. Yeah, great, great answer, great answer. It's awesome. Okay, we got some questions out there. Kyle, uh, wave your hand up there, Kyle. Okay, uh, he's going to run over to you if you've got a question, and um, he is instructed to take the microphone away from you if you're making a statement. We want you to ask questions, okay? Because we want to get as many questions as we can into our time, and you've got a great guy to answer these questions. So uh, just go ahead and raise your hand, and he'll come your way. And uh, for those of you, if you don't get uh, approached first, uh, Kyle's got to be watching for hands first to make that happen. She okay, there first. we go. She, well, it's okay. Hey, brother. Sorry about that. We'll question. go to you next year. Sorry about that. Kyle wasn't watching. He's not paying attention. He messes around like that. He's out of control, but it's okay. We'll make sure we get it fixed. Okay, go ahead. Question. Um, I was watching the news, and one of the Dodger players had, uh, they did a story on his wife giving premature birth. The baby was born three days or three months early. Has anyone used that argument that how can you say that you know, second-term abortion doesn't kill a baby when people are actually saving the life of a premature baby. Yep. And, you know, I know A.J. Pollock won't say it, but yep. I know he's a Christian and I know that he's pro-life, but have they ever challenged people that were born premature to say, well, you know, how can you say that? if That's right. So you've just put your finger on the abortion distortion. You've just put your finger on the questions you're not supposed to ask. So well done, brother. Repeat and believe. Don't think for yourself. Because of course that's the natural question. With anyone 
who can think for themselves. If you look at the abortion debate, right, and you see a, you want to know the earliest prematurely born baby, by the way? Well, that baby was born at the end of 2019 at 21 weeks and zero days. Guess that baby went home this summer healthy. This is the earliest surviving prematurely born baby in human history. And it happened here in America. What's a full-term baby? 40 weeks. So almost half. Whoa. 21 weeks. But you're not supposed to ask those questions. And what is that question? The question is, how is the 21-week baby that the hospital worked heroically to save a person, but a baby at 35 weeks that a mother wants to kill in the third trimester is not a baby with human rights? Oh, oh, don't ask that question. Duh, obviously. Where have we seen this recently? Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, who recently just mourned the loss of their baby, I believe born at 20 weeks, okay? to miscarriage. Did they call him a blob of tissue? Oh, wait, they named him. They named him Jack. The horror is that John Legend and Chrissy Teigen give hundreds of thousands of dollars to Planned Parenthood. It's crazy. You want to know who was leading the charge against boycotting Georgia for trying to pass pro-life laws last year? John Legend. He was asking Hollywood people to not film or produce in Georgia as a way to boycott that state because they were trying to pass a heartbeat bill. So John Legend and Chrissy Teigen will pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into an organization that kills children older than their son and whom we're told we're supposed to mourn because they wanted Jack. So what are they telling us? Life is only valuable if you're wanted. Yeah. That's a disgusting, evil ideology that should have been thoroughly debunked hundreds of years ago because it's the same type of euphemistic bigotry that racists said about blacks and Nazis said about Jews. We don't want you. When you dehumanize life at one stage, you'll dehumanize it at another. And so now we're having this ridiculous conversation in America about whether children should have the right to euthanize their elderly parents if they don't want them. We are not valuable because of whether we're wanted by other people or not. We're valuable because of a human nature and we're created in the image of God and that humanity began at the moment of conception and no child is an unwanted child because God wants that child, created that child and there are people like James and others who said, I will adopt that baby, I will save that baby. There's no such thing as an unwanted child. That's right, yeah, amen to that and I'll tell you this, throughout the course of history, throughout the tenure of history, the ones that have put a stop to it are the Christians when they choose to speak up. Nobody else will put a stop to it. That's the Christians right. have. That's what happened with slavery. That's what's happened with all the other reprehensible things that we've seen throughout right. the tenure of our history. It's Christians. So do not let the lying left and the fake media tell you that it's Christians that created this problem. That's I've right. actually even heard Calvary Chapel pastors say that Christians created this problem. We didn't. That's right. That's a lie. Now, By the way, do you want to know why the church was so ethnically diverse, the early church? They were saving abandoned infants left in the street right. by other individuals. So the church was diverse because they were saving babies of a whole variety of other ethnicities who were left out to die and be exposed to the elements because they weren't wanted. That's and right. the church was rescuing babies exposed to infanticide because they were called to love their neighbor and understood that all human beings were created in the image of God. Amen. Amen. Great, great answer. Great answer. All right. Hi, thank you. Um, the one that I get asked that I can't answer very well is um, if the woman is involved in a domestic abuse situation, she's not ready to get out of that situation, but her ideal is I'd rather take care of it than have my husband kill us both. I don't know how to answer Take it. care of it, meaning get an abortion, yeah. not actually take care of the child. Exactly. <laughs> gotcha. Just making sure I understood your question. Yeah, so there are plenty of horrific scenarios that people are exposed to, and unfortunately those are being intensified right now because of lockdowns where spouses are being forced to spend multiple hours with their abusive pathetic excuses for a spouse these degenerates so unfortunately the situation that you're describing is probably on the rise right now hmm. right wives girlfriends women pregnant and spending more time with their abusive spouse or partner we as the church should be the ones on the front lines of loving individuals who are exposed to injustice. And we should be the ones ensuring that the people who govern us will be committed to justice. Because I hear a lot of people say, when I tell them, well, report him. 
and they don't have faith in the institutions to protect her from him. Now, maybe that doubt about whether the legal system will protect her is unwarranted, but maybe it is warranted. And if it is warranted, then get those people out of office and get people into office who will respect justice and ensure that women who are being abused by moral degenerates will be protected and those men will be put away. But it is not compassionate to murder children to spare them future injustice. Sure, that child might be exposed, right, to domestic abuse from a father who's already a degenerate because he's abusing his wife or his own child's mother. Well, justice would call for him to be punished, for him to meet the consequences of his action in a legal system, right, that's supposed to protect life, liberty, and property. But killing innocent human beings and telling ourselves is compassionate because they might be abused later is not compassionate. That's playing God. That's deciding who lives and who dies. So her question fits into this larger question that you'll hear a lot in the abortion debate, right? Where they say, ah, oh, but these babies are gonna be born in really hard circumstances. And then they try to convince you that they're compassionate because they support a woman's right to choose. Choose what? Choose to pay a hitman to kill her child. That they're compassionate by defending that choice. Why? To spare children future suffering, even though they don't know that the child will suffer because how many wonderful, beautiful stories do we have of people who grew up in hard circumstances and got out of it and painted a beautiful life for themselves in the freest country that we've ever seen. That's right. But they're gonna sit on the throne of God and decide who lives and who dies and then convince you that they're compassionate because they defend dismembering children in a womb to spare them child abuse after? Let me tell you something, abortion is the greatest form of child abuse. Because abusing children already born may not always end in their death, but abortion always does. Yeah, that's a great answer. The compassionate thing is to love the mother, ensure justice for those abusing the mother or the child, and to protect the child. Child is just as innocent as his or her mother. Both of them should be protected. Those abusing them should be put away. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, you're going you're gonna to literally tear their bodies apart to keep them from getting hit. Tell me how that makes sense. You know, it's such a backward That's right. way of thinking. Very good. Very good answer. Okay. You got a question? Okay. Uh, Kyle? Um, I've seen a lot of people post on, like, social media and asking, like, oh, where are the pro-lifers when, like, oh at boy, the Black yeah. Lives Matter march, like, this wo pregnant go. woman was yeah. trampled on and nobody cared about her? Or how come we're going to war and killing all these people? And Right. I'm like, I'm trying to be compassion to both, to both sides. Yeah. And I don't know how to answer that. <clears throat> so great. Re I, can I just say really yeah. quickly, thank you for asking that question because there's not a lot of people that are bold enough to actually ask it and be concerned. They just kind of give up when they hear that argument and you got to pay attention to his answer. It's an important one. So what you just put your thumb on is the new hip redefinition of pro-life. It insinuates that quality of life outside the womb is somehow morally equivalent to protection of life in it. It's a very silly idea. And there's new woke pastors and Christians and some people who say they're in the pro-life movement who adopt this redefinition of pro-life. Now, let me be very clear. The pro-life movement has rejected this label, <clears throat> this redefinition of pro-life. And I'm going to get into that more in a second. But that's their fundamental assumption. They're conflating quality of life outside the womb with protection of life in it. I was just telling Pastor James, I just got a comment on my Facebook from someone I graduated Westmont with. And I sort of graciously blasted him the other day because he put a picture of him and his wife putting their ballots in a ballot box. And I know they voted for Biden. So I kind of, you know, I kind of went after him and I said, you say you're a Christian and pro-life. You just voted for the party killing children. You cannot tell your neighbor you love them, but it also should be legal to kill them. And he responded <clears throat> by saying, well, yeah, but Republicans stink at caring for Mexicans and immigrants and blacks and the infirm and the disabled and the elderly. And so, that's important too, because I'm pro-life. So you're going to sacrifice savable children who have no right to life in order to improve quality of life for those already born. Those are not morally equivalent. Now, does that mean that we don't care about quality of life outside the womb? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that unlike the left, we don't believe that big daddy government should solve all the problems. 
Because let me be clear, that's what they're assuming. So their tacit assumption, they're not going to tell you this, but their tacit assumption when they tell you things like that. But what about the born people that pro-lifers stink at caring for? You're only, you're only pro-birth. You only care about the baby uh, when it's unborn. Once it's born, you don't care at all. That's their, that's their fundamental assumption. So they're saying, I need to vote for the Democratic Party because they're going to just hand out checks. They're going to be big daddy government and improve quality of life for those outside the womb. But we as Christians typically believe that the, the very ones who should be improving quality of life outside the womb is the individual. We have individual responsibilities to love our neighbors. And Christians have a spiritual obligation to do so, to love the immigrant, to love those targeted by injustice, right? To love the elderly, the orphan, the widow in distress. But we don't believe that big daddy government should come in and love them. They don't care. They don't give two rips about those people. They're sitting on the hill or in their big mansions pontificating about how they love the small guy, right? The Democratic Party is a party of the small guy. Oh, except they slaughter the smallest guys, unborn children. Yeah, so I'm not going to take that. See what I mean? So they conflate these two. <clears throat> They're not morally equivalent because if we don't get the right to life right, we won't get any other rights right. How can we expect that party to improve quality of life outside the womb which pr presumes that they were given life in the first place. You can't have the right to liberty and property or pursuit of happiness. What's another way to call pursuit of happiness? Quality of life outside the womb. You can't have that if it's legal to kill you, as long as you're in the womb, as long as you're located six inches away in a womb designed to hold you. See what I mean? So that's why it's ridiculous to redefine pro-life. And no other movement gets this accusation. As I mentioned in the last service, the American Cancer Society is never told that they're not really anti-cancer because those bigots only try to solve one form of disease. Why aren't they trying to solve all forms of disease? Such a great point. I guess they're not pro-life. Such a great point. Oh, I guess Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, who fought racism and slavery. You know what? Actually, if you really think about it, if, you get, if you're really woke, you'll realize that they weren't really anti-racists because they only tried to abolish one form of evil, slavery. What were they doing on sex trafficking and universal health care? <laughs> what? Excuse me? While many issues are important, they're not all morally equivalent. Abortion is not the only issue of our day, given. Any more than slavery was the only issue of the day in the 1850s, or killing Jews was the only issue in the 1940s, but they were both the dominant issues of their day, right? we don't get the right to life right, we're not going to get any other rights right. And savable babies should not be alt sacrificed on the altar of your pursuit of happiness to improve quality of life for those outside the womb. And then lastly, call their bluff when they tell you that Republicans don't care about these other individuals. Right. Well, at least they're not passing laws saying you can kill black people and elderly people and the immigrant and the infirmed. Unlike your party, which does pass laws saying you can kill humans in a womb. So call their bluff. Tell them that the right to life is the most important right. And then remind them that the best people situated to improve quality of life outside the womb are the people living in the communities with their neighbors who have a vested interest in improving their lives. Not big daddy government who doesn't care two rips about those people, but will pontificate about how they do in order to sell votes. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this episode, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash unaborted. You'll notice some really fun tiers there and perks that you get for supporting the show, starting at like $10 a month and moving up from there. And it's just really helpful to help us reach more people with these ideas. And you're helping me be able to bring more pro-life content to individuals, create different types of content, and get this content on social media and to the young people who are being discipled with a secular liturgy on their iPhones and how they think about the world. And we want to get the right ideas to them. Very soon, we're going to begin releasing pro-life videos, very short, four-minute, punchy, viral-friendly defenses of the pro-life position and debunking pro-abortion uh, pro arguments and responding to them in a way that will be persuasive to reach those people who are on the middle in this issue or pro-choicers to reconsider their beliefs. And so your support of this show helps us create more types of pro-life content and improve the production quality of what we already have. So consider becoming a patron of the show. It really helps us and it will help the unborn as well. Patreon.com forward slash unaborted and enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay, we got another question. 
Yes. Okay. We'll go to you next. Um, why do people? Why do many people in particular use the "I got a rape" card as an excuse to do the abortion procedure? Oh, yeah. Is good good question. This, please. So this is the most common objection that will be brought up in your conversations on life, and it's worth pointing out that once again, we as Christians ought to be the ones on the front lines loving these women who have been abused. But the reason that they appeal to women who have been raped and impregnated to argue for the pro-choice position, and listen, is because they're appealing to the exception to argue for the norm. They're hiding behind rape victims to make themselves look more compassionate in their support of abortion. Here's what I mean by that. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, half of a percent of the annual abortion rate are performed on women who have been raped and impregnated. Oh, wow. Half of a percent. Now, when you kill a million babies a year, small percentages represent large numbers still, but we're still talking about a super minority. So you want to know how to entirely discredit their straw man argument in one question? Ask them this. If we set aside rape in the circum abortion in the circumstances of rape for one second, will you join me in fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions? And what will the answer of your pro-choice friend be? They'll say no. Yeah, then you ask question. them, then why are you hiding behind rape victims to, to veil your position that you actually believe abortion should be legal for any reason? That's intellectually dishonest. You're appealing to the exception to hmm. argue for the norm. That's great. Now, what do we do in a circumstance where a woman is raped and impregnated? Okay, let's get into the details now of how you actually respond to this after you've shown them that they're, they actually don't care about these rape, these rape victims at all because they support abortion for any reason, not just in cases of rape. Let's go through how many humans are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape. Anyone want to take a guess? How many humans are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape? Three, exactly. The child, the mother, and the rapist. All right, now ask your friend who should get the death penalty. Now, they'll probably say if they have any type of moral integrity to them, the rapist. Now, we don't have capital punishment for rapists in America unless they rape and murder the woman. Also, we almost never do capital punishments anymore. You could probably count on one, one hand the amount of people who've gotten capital punishment in America in the last decade because they're frequently given lesser sentences or it just continues to get go through the courts over and over and over again. It's ridiculous, right? We need, these need to be swift punishments and justice. But I support actually harsher penalties for men who rape women. Yep. I would support castrations or capital punishment, okay? At the very least, lifetime in jail with no opportunity, no opportunity to shorten the sentence. Justice is important. Yes, yeah, second chances are important, but justice is too. Justice demands that, that the doers of evil are dealt with. And if you rape a woman, at the very least, you should have life in prison. You have no place in a civilized society. You can't be trusted. So I would support harsher, harsher penalties for rapists. But we don't give, my point is, we don't give the death penalty to men who rape women. Okay, so we don't kill him. And if the rape victim, the woman, murders her rapist, she'll be held legally responsible. So she can't even murder the very person who abused her. Okay, can we murder her? No, that's disgusting. Now, why would I even bring that up? Some Muslim countries still practice something called honor killings yep. because they have this certain culture of shame. Most. And they view a woman who has been raped as having brought shame upon herself and the family. And they believe in this very botched view of humanity and compassion that she should be murdered for having been raped. That's disgusting and immoral. Why? Because she's an innocent victim. Okay, now look at this. The rape victim, the rapist doesn't get the death penalty. The rape victim doesn't get the death penalty and isn't allowed to kill the person who abused her. Why should the unborn child get the death penalty who's just as innocent as his or her mother? If the rape victim can't kill the rapist who is guilty, why should she be able to kill the unborn child who's just as innocent as she is? Yep. Justice would demand that the doer of evil, the criminal is dealt with, not the child. Now, what will someone tell you sometimes? Again, they're going to do their fake compassion. You can describe almost any pro-choice or as fake compassion. They're going to say, yeah, but what if that baby looks like the rapist? Heard that one? 
So then they're gonna tell you as the pro-lifer that you're an animal and that you're disgusting because you know what you're gonna do to her? You're gonna force her to relive that rape every time she looks at that child. By the way, that's disgusting because I know individuals who have carried to term children who have been raped and they love those children. And it doesn't remind them of the rapist father who is a moral degenerate. It's very disgusting and demeaning to tell the women that somehow they have no ability to love that child because it was a product of rape and might look like the father. It's very demeaning to tell women that. But if that's true, okay? Follow me. If it's okay to kill babies conceived in rape because they might look like the rapist's father, well, but what if they look like the mother? We don't want to accidentally abort a child under the premise that it might look like the rapist's father and force the mother to relive that trauma if it looks like the mother. So I have a solution, pro-choicer. Ready for this? Let's let the child be carried to term, have the mother give birth just to make sure we don't kill babies that look like the mother, and then the doctor can hold the baby up to the mom, and if it looks like the rapist's father, just throw it out the hospital window. Because remember, that's compassionate. Remember, I'm loving. I'm compassionate because I'm sparing mother the reliving of their mental trauma of the rape. That's why I threw the child out the window. That's why I told the doctor to decapitate the infant. So pro-choicers, follow me, do not believe that you can kill babies conceived in rape if they're already born. They only believe you can kill babies conceived in rape if they're still in the womb designed to hold them. So what does that tell you about their real position? That they're bigots and they don't believe the unborn child to be equally valuable to born people. And then you ask why? You ask why? Right back to the case for life, because they believe that differences in size, level of development, location, and dependency are somehow relevant to our rights. Yeah. So every pro-choice argument will assume within the course of its rhetoric that the unborn is not truly a full person with rights. Demand them to defend that position. Any argument they give you for abortion can be used to abort or kill born people. So the fundamental question at the end of the day is not about rape. It's not about women's rights. It's not about feminism. It's not about domestic abuse. It's about what is the unborn. If they're a full person like you and I, they deserve the same protections as born people would have. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. We'll take, uh, I think, two more questions and we'll wrap it up. So right here. No, no. Let's go here and then we'll take you. I can, I'll rapid fire. We can do three. Okay. Okay. We'll try. We'll go for three. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, bro. Um, mine is in the previous service, you had stipulated that through Medicare being defunded, it has saved two million babies. Has the entire federalism been taken out of the, you know, the quote unquote abortion industry? Um, are we going to need? You mean has all the funding? Correct. Are we going to need to overturn Roe v. Wade? Right. So, so the Hyde Amendment passed by, uh, written by Henry Hyde mm -hmm. is what keeps taxpayer dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements. And Joe Biden, by the way, who's been a rabid pro-abort his entire political career, has supported the Hyde Amendment until he launched his campaign for president because his party has been taken over by radical leftists. And if you support the Hyde Amendment just because you don't think that we should force pro-life Americans to fund abortion— which is why he supported it his whole life, then they'll call you a racist. That literally, they were insinuating that he was somehow racist because then he's depriving black women their fundamental rights. To murder. Right to abortion, right. So that was is what I was referring to. But we still fund Planned Parenthood. Yes, and I'll get to that right now. So because the Hyde Amendment and, and other um, um, policies have kept us from directly funding abortion, it doesn't matter because money's fungible. So we do fund Planned Parenthood, and then, and then our courts just say, um, don't use it on abortion, okay? If you want a pizza and a video game, and they cost $20 each, and you only have $20, and I give you $20, what $20 did you spend on the video game? It's fungible. I just enabled you to buy both. Do you see what I mean? So we tell Planned Parenthood, just don't spend the, the $560 million a year on abortions, okay? You just enabled them to allocate funding to other things and therefore still fund abortion. Because you just added money to their budget. So what are they using on abortion and what are they not? It's all fungible. So we're still funding abortions because we're still funding the organization that commits abortions. And according to the recent statistics, uh, funding statistics, it was almost $600 million last year. Taxpayer dollars to Planned Parenthood. So yes, we're still funding them. Uh, Trump was successful in defunding 60 million through Title X family planning. You know all Planned Parenthood had to do to keep that funding? 
was to not accept that funding at clinics that perform abortions. So just don't kill babies at these clinics or stop your abortion services. And did they do that? No, because abortion is the sacrament of the left. And the worst part about it is Donald Trump is being accused of facilitating the record number of tax dollars that we've been paying into abortions when in reality that's not the case actually it's kind of an interesting mechanism because a lot of states have increased funding as well so yeah yeah and then the other problem is rose an interesting thing uh in law school it was one of the big discussions that we had Roe doesn't really do a whole lot as sad as that sounds other than take away the federal mandates with respect to abortion. What it basically does is sends it back to the states to make those decisions. Now, it's a big deal to us who are pro-life advocates because that would mean that in probably 13, maybe 14 states of the union, abortion becomes illegal again, which would be wonderful, right? Uh, If it was overturned. Right, if it was overturned, right, if it was overturned. Right. And even if it was overturned, there's still lots of questions with respect to precedent, right. which is a term we hear a lot. If you've been listening to the um, if you've been listening to the Judge Barrett confirmations, you've heard terms like stare decisis and other terms like that. Uh, she talked a little bit about sorority for cases and th- different things like that. There's a lot of things that go into play, which still doesn't become the uh, the end all. By the way, Judge Barrett being confirmed into the Supreme Court is not the end all for the Supreme Court either. I hate to say that. Don't get me wrong. She's going to be awesome. I think she's going to she's going to do well. But I, th- it's not what you think it is. Yeah, we, basically, we still don't have the votes. So right. We still don't but have the votes. Do you want to get to other questions? Yeah. Yes. Let's go take it. Go ahead. I think it was Walter Mandel that. They just irked me when I first heard him. He said that, well, you know, my 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 religious beliefs are, is private to me and me only. And has, they don't have nothing to do with the way I vote because I'm a, uh, a politician first. And uh, religion is not, not to be, a, it's second nature. I'm tired of that. I mean, don't you think it's time that... Uh, What's your question? These politicians and senators should go the other way around and say that they are a Christian first and a politician second. To be honest, because the Democrats hate us anyhow. Right. So what's the relationship between Christianity and politics, between religion and politics? So my my answer to that is that I'm actually not even going to make a case for life from Christianity because I think you should be opposed to abortion even if you're an atheist who hates God. Because atheists who hate God, guess what? Are they still all opposed to slavery and sex trafficking? Oh, yeah, they are. But wait, they don't believe in a God, one God who created all human beings in his image and in his likeness. But eternity is written on the heart of man. God's reign falls on the just and the unjust, and so they can't help but acknowledge the dignity of human beings. But then they turn around and they deny that dignity to unborn human beings. So, yes, we understand that at the end of the day, the reason that human life is valuable is because it's created in the image of God. Amen. True. That's objectively true. But do we have to firstly persuade fellow Americans of that in order to win them over to the pro-life movement? I don't think so. We should win them over, befriend them, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, but still work together with them to end abortion, right? Look at the Democratic Party. They, they, they would say that they hate slavery. They would say that they're against sex trafficking. But most of them are not Christians. Most of them are not religious people. So when it comes to religion and politics, particularly on the issue of abortion, I don't think that our, the vast majority of our time should be spent on ensuring that politicians are Christian first. Because guess what? I think all of us in this room are willing to vote for a president who we are not convinced is born again, but God is using him mightily to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we don't necessarily only need candidates who are born again. If we get both, awesome. If we get a born again man or woman who's fierce in defending life, liberty, and property, cool. But if we don't have that option, that's also okay because they just need to fulfill their job description which is to protect life, liberty, and property. And that has to start in the womb, because if we don't get the right to life right, we won't get any other rights right. So. Right, yeah, well, no, we, we understand. I, I, I completely understand what perspective you're coming from. I do get it. Um, but I, and, and I will say that it's very, very important that we do look at things like that. You know, when we're, especially those of us that are voting, we've got to look at that. We've got to look at the, what principles, you know, because in essence, your worldview is always going to control uh, what the decisions you make. So it's a very understandable right. statement. Very understandable. One uh, more? Yeah, let's take one more. Any other questions? Okay. Yeah, she was waiting over here very patiently. 
I would like to know what, how you would suggest we pro-lifers promote adoption. We have women out there who are really in stress, very stressed, along what you were saying, and we do not take that really strong position of giving them that option. That's right. And housing them or caring for them or whatever. I know there's ministries in the South Bay who do that. That's right. But uh, I just think it would be it would give us um, more um, a more compassionate look. That's if right. We acted more compassionately. Yeah, absolutely. Women in stress. Yeah, that's beautiful. A great question. And it's always a both and, of course. It's working politically to end abortion, and it's also in our personal lives, adopting personal responsibility to save lives. And if that includes saying, we'll adopt all the babies, then we should do that, right? We should take the example of our spiritual forefathers in the early church who were saving infants, adopting them, and raising them as their own. Now, it's not a case for case example, it's more complicated. Our adoption. Uh, networks are very bad, right? The foster care system is horrible. So once again, civic duty, civic responsibility. Imagine if we had born-again believers running these institutions. Things might look very different oh. in terms of how quickly you can get a adopted baby, how quickly you can go through the approval process, right? And you guys know the foster care system. I mean, they almost bend over backwards to ensure that children stay with their parents, even if that's not the best for the child. I mean, I have friends who have foster cared. I've, I've learned the intricacies of how horrible the foster care system is. I mean, the mom could be drugged out coming to her visit, and they will do anything to keep the child with the parents, even if it's not the best for the child. So firstly, we need to have more civic responsibility. Like, if you feel God's calling you to get involved, get involved in these institutions. Fight that grisly battle to make these institutions better. But yes, in our personal lives, Christians ought to be the ones adopting all of the babies. Now, I'm not saying we're all called to adoption, Right. But certainly more of us should be saying that. Why? Because we've been adopted. Yeah. Right? The pro-life response in position is simply the correct response of the heart to the gospel. Yes. We have been adopted into God's holy family, having done nothing to earn it and giving free salvation upon repentance and forgiveness of sins. How can we not be the ones adopting all of the children? Recognizing what a beauty it is to be adopted into a family that was not our own, but being loved lavishly by a perfect father. We should be channeling that gospel in adopting these children. Can you imagine if every Christian was doing that? Now, don't take me as glossing this over because I actually I do know how many people do want to adopt. We have very long adoption waiting lists in America. One of the reasons, one of them, besides how bad these institutions are, is because there's not enough babies to go around because yeah. we're killing them all in abortion. So we need to fight on both ends, you see. We need to adopt the babies, but we also need to end abortion. So that, that's what I'd say to that. That's right. Well, let's, guys, let's pray. What a great time it's been, right? You know, get a lot of good questions answered and— uh, we got a great brother here that God has been using in a great way. And if oh yeah, and by the way, if you're here only for third service and you weren't at the other ones, go to my website, sign up for please, my newsletter because it's free resources for you, SethGruber.com. Also check out my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber, and you're gonna get more firehose pro-life content than you're able to handle. But you just keep tuning in each week, right? And you're gonna be discipled in a pro-life ethic and you're gonna be running around like little pro-life ninjas. Okay, so so subscribe to that podcast. You're gonna be literally ambassadors <laughs> for the unborn. And then lastly, if you wanna support my work to reach young people with these types of ideas that I articulated today in high schools, colleges, youth groups, you can support my work by texting babies to 47, 47, 47. Thank you guys. Yeah, and, and you guys should invest in it, right? Uh, let's support Seth. He's got a great ministry. Um, and um, your ministry, anything you contribute to his ministry goes to a fund called Feed the Children, the Gruber Children, okay? So we <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> I, That's right. I, listen, I got to tell you, I want him doing this full time, okay? <laughs> so I really, I hope and pray that a lot of people will step up and support yeah, the yeah. ministry that he has. And your support we, really, it enables me to tell schools I, I can come and fly and speak for free. Uh, it enables me to cover airfare if someone can't afford to fly me out to speak. It enables me to reach more co on pro-life content Amen. online. So that you're directly funding my impact at this point. But again, praise God for James. Praise God for a brave pastor. <laughs> and praise God for you guys. Thank you for having Amen. me. Let's pray. Alrighty, well, hey, what a wonderful time with Pastor James Gaddis and his church there. I really hope this benefited you and that you enjoyed the Q&A time that we did. We're going to be doing more of these at different churches and schools that I'll be speaking at very recently as things start opening back up and people start fighting for life and liberty. Listen, give us a rating and review. It really helps. We have a lot of pro-abortion trolls that troll this podcast. So give, go give us those five stars and write what you think. It really helps people see the success of the show and helps us show up. Uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, so more people see the show. As well, if you want to learn more about me, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B is in baby boy, E-R.com, to sign up for my newsletter. 
to support my ministry on a monthly basis if you feel so called to get my blog and to get more information and booking regarding my speaking uh, calendar as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Share this episode with someone who disagrees with you. Have good conversations defending life and we'll see you next week. Oh, <laughs>